Utopia was just another word to them. Casual as Alicia's slouching and that bottomless glass of milk are no drunk. It did sound nice off the tongue though. After he'd finish a rhyme, she'd say, Welcome to our utopian podcast. An oxymoron, but the talk was glad enough. They reminded me of African nesting birds in the hottest throes of summer. Quiet, every once in a while jumping from their listlessness into hysterics when one would remember a worm. But they were every Monday for years and years. (laughs) Hey everyone, welcome back to Soul Scene, the podcast where we imagine a beautiful, sustainable, tactile future. And if you didn't figure it out from that opening monologue story, we're going to be talking about Ernest Hemingway today. This is the third episode in our biography semester, so we are populating the solar scene, which is the beautiful future, with inhabitants, past, present, and future. And we've started with a kind of trilogy of writers, which is fun. I don't think we really intended that, it just how it ended up. We mm-hmm. started with Sappho, and then last week we talked about Shakespeare, and now we're jumping into the 20th century with Hemingway, who, as you said, I did try to imitate with that opening little salvo. I don't think I nailed it, because I haven't read as much of him as you have, but Mm -hmm. hopefully I captured at least some of the spirit. Yeah, the making a metaphor about African nesting birds is very (laughs) Hemingway. I don't even know if that's a thing. Yeah, I don't think those words really make sense together. No, but it's just funny. So we're going to be talking less biographically and more theoretically about his life and taking lessons from his life that we can apply to our own and to a future that is more sustainable. It's a little bit of a stretch. It's hard to imagine, but we're going to bring you there. So stick along. Yeah, I mean, we we basically treat the life as if it's itself a story, which we can thematically analyze. Because I think especially this week with Hemingway, if we were to be strictly biographical, we would be here for hours just detailing all of the various international exploits he got up to. But our first kind of thesis, I suppose, of the episode is about doing action. Because I think above all else, Hemingway was a doer. Mm-hmm. He liked to go places, do things, see things. And I had a quote from him this time. I didn't just imitate him. That I think is a good intro to such a discussion. It's not from a story. It was He wrote it as part of the preface to a short story collection called The First 49. It was a collection published of The First 49 short stories he wrote. And in it, he wrote... In going where you have to go, and doing what you have to do, and seeing what you have to see, you dull and blunt the instrument you write with. But I would rather have it bent and dull, and know I had to put it on the grindstone again, and hammer it into shape, and put a whetstone to it, and know that I had something to write about, than to have it bright and shining and nothing to say, or smooth and well-oiled in the closet, but unused. Wow, I really like that. Me too. Because as two people who are gearing up for some travels in the future... It is hard to think about traveling because there's a lot of sacrifices that you have to make. You can't bring your shiny things with you. You can't, like, you're pretty much just your own brain and body. Mm. And then the benefit of it is that you'll then be inspired, as he's saying. Like, it's going to be tough on you, and especially in his life, it was physically tough on him, emotionally. And this came out in his writing as incredible stories. But yeah, the actual vessel of his own body and his own like life was had to keep being rebuilt. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, it's also relevant because we're both, I suppose, aspiring creative people, or I guess most people are. But whatever your 
form of expression. I like to write, you like to sew, and we do various other things as well. Sometimes you feel this malaise, and we've, you and I have been talking ourselves a lot about this recently, where, for instance, I want to write a big project. Like I've been feeling like I want to write a novel or something. But then you get this kind of second guessing about, but what am I going to write about? And you feel like your life experience maybe hasn't caught up to your artistic ambition. Mm. So there's a sense of like, you need to experience some things to be able to write truthfully about big themes. And he, from what I can tell, almost exclusively wrote about big things, war and death and love and, you know, addiction and travel. And like he was writing from a, they were very kind of personal stories, but they were touching Mm -hmm. on really universal themes. And I think when someone tries to write about those things without having any real exposure to it outside of, let's say, books about those things or movies about those things, which is what most of us have today, like we've never been on Battlefield, but, you know, a lot of people have seen Saving Private Ryan. It rings of inauthenticity, kind of. Mm, for sure. Hemingway famously was quite the exaggerator when it comes to his biography. Oh, yeah, yeah. So a lot of the facts that we know about him couldn't be highly inaccurate like calling himself a war hero and stuff and it's like perhaps these things didn't happen but there's not a ton of proof i just think it's funny but at least he had something to go off of because we couldn't write these stories that were pretty convincing about being in battle just based off of saving private ryan like he had there was some truth to it sort of yeah i think there was this delightful kind of gray area between autobiography and complete fiction that Mm -hmm. permeates a lot of his works which kind of makes it fun and feeds into that mythologizing of one's own self which Mm -hmm. is this kind of you know you're trying to make yourself this larger than life figure which maybe was a little bit easier pre-internet for one thing but also i can see why a lot of people think that's this kind of really grandiose and maybe distinctly american kind of arrogance about oneself for sure but i think it's just fun (laughs) <laughs> yeah, similarly to the Shakespeare episode we did last week, I'm going to try and pace myself because I am the Hemingway fiend in this household. So even already I'm trying to stop myself from like blurting out a bunch of facts yeah. and ideas and stuff. But I just had one thought of if anyone's watching on YouTube, you'll notice Aaron just said Aaron's a writer and Alicia sews. And I just realized that our new backgrounds reflect that really well because you have a bookshelf in the background and I have a rack of Clothes in the background. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I appreciate the way you successfully <laughs> tried to integrate that plug into our YouTube channel. So we've seen podcasts on YouTube. But yeah, I guess that's thematic. Yeah. But in keeping with the doing and especially the relationship between one's experiences and one's art, I really think that's our first lesson that we can draw directly to the solo scene. I'm also reminded of another quote by uh, another artist, Hayao Miyazaki, who um, kind of co-founded Studio Ghibli and directed a lot of their classic films who may or may not appear later in this semester as well, where he was kind of denouncing the state of modern anime. And he said, most modern anime directors and artists and writers are working based off of other anime, whereas we work based off of real life. Mm-hmm. And I really think this is, a, this is a key thing that's feeding into, there's a lot of factors, but for instance, like the increasing stylized nature and kind of self-referential or meta nature of a lot of, let's say, big movies that we see today Mm -hmm. is because the people involved in them don't have life experiences outside of the cinema. And I don't think that every 
wannabe artist needs to be all the time traveling and putting themselves in literal danger, as was Hemingway. But I think we need to embody more of this go-getter spirit. I think it's a spectrum. I think on the one end, you have Hemingway, who most of his writing was kind of almost like journalistic. Mm-hmm. Even if it was fictionalized, it was very heavily taken by what he would see day by day, I think. And on the other end, you have, we don't know much about him, but you can imagine someone like Shakespeare being a lot more studious. You know, a lot of his stories did come from Ovid's Metamorphoses and other pre-existing sources. They were obviously mm-hmm. shaped by things that he observed as well. So he wasn't completely battening himself down in a library and just studying. But I think that we need to be more aware of this balance between study and living. And even that was a good example because Shakespeare very clearly studied the metamorphoses, different languages, religion, all of these things. But today we can even lean in towards barely studying them, just passively enjoying and absorbing stuff. And I think there's a difference between that and what Shakespeare was doing and what some other historically great artists have done of being really immersed in the industry. Like Tarantino has watched tens of thousands of films in his life, but he wasn't just sitting down at 10 p.m. and like popping one on. It was intentional, Mm -hmm. mentally taking notes, rewatching, looking into the industry, these types of things. And Tarantino, as an example, probably didn't have a ton of experience with the things he was making movies about. Like he didn't live in 70s Hollywood. He didn't live during World War II. But by studying other films and these histories, he was able to put forth really lovely stories. Yeah, it's a good point. I just think too many of us veer towards that today. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's best when we have a variety of types of people. For sure. Types of characters. Where are yeah. the characters today? That's what I want to know. Where are the characters? Where's the person who walks into the gas station and we immediately know there's Ernest? Mm-hmm. It's interesting you were saying how journalistic his fiction seems because he began as a journalist. Yeah. He was editing, obviously, like the high school newspaper as most authors in like the early 1900s were doing. I feel like they were all on their high school journalism team. But then he went to work for the Kansas City Star where the... Famously, the style guide really informed Hemingway's writing. So the Kansas City Star, their style guide, said to use short sentences, use a short first paragraph, use vigorous English, Mm -hmm. and be positive, not negative, which I found really interesting because Hemingway, infamously, before I started reading through all of his works, is very negative. Like, it's all really bleak and dark stories. Yeah, it's quite cynical. But then when you actually read it, until the last chapter or so, a lot of them are really beautiful. I'll use A Farewell to Arms as an example. So spoilers ahead. Honestly, if you want to read it, don't be spoiled. Like, just skip ahead like two minutes. So in Farewell to Arms, it's a soldier who goes to war in Italy. Similarly, as Hemingway did, Hemingway went as a medic, not a medic, like an ambulance driver with the Red Cross. And the soldier was in his last kind of stint and was really badly damaged during a mortar fire. So was Hemingway, which is interesting. And he's like, this is like really dark stuff. Goes to the hospital for six months, falls in love there, and then gets like basically called out for evading 
his duty after he's in the hospital because he wants to escape. He like is disillusioned with war. After mm-hmm. all of his time in the hospital, he realizes that it's all kind of for nothing. So he tries to escape with his um, wife that he had fell in love with at the hospital. And then it's like it's all really dark, but the way it's described is so beautiful. You don't feel bad while reading it. A lot of cynical fiction can be bad, but I feel like this is what the lost generation of writers, which we'll talk about later, they all did really well. Fitzgerald, Sherwood Anderson, they all, as bleak and cynical as their writing was, it was just, it's pleasant to read, which I think is hard to do, and we can kind of veer towards unpretty cynicism today. Yeah, I mean, maybe cynical isn't the word for it, but it's it's plain, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like for me, as I've recently been reading some of his short stories to prepare for this episode, after months of exclusively reading Shakespeare's plays or books about Shakespeare's plays, I was kind of looking forward to this. And I was like, oh, this will be easy. This will mm-hmm. be a relief. Because what you know about Hemingway is that it's, it's such simple prose. And I was mm-hmm. like, I won't have to try and decipher this like medieval English anymore. You basically but, do. But, well... <laughs> It's, it is easier to read in that way, but also I just find it, it requires as much, if not more, concentration than does something like Shakespeare. It's, it's weird. And I was finding it, it's kind of a good, like a litmus test for one's skill as a reader. So I had a passage from a short story called The Snows of Kilimanjaro, which I think is one of his most famous ones that I read. And I really loved it. It was... One of the first things I've read in a long time where I felt a stir in the heart upon reading it. Mm -hmm. And I was glad about this. And I was also kind of annoyed at myself that it doesn't happen more often. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something kind of disarmingly approachable about Hemingway's prose that you, the emotion of it kind of took me by surprise. Exactly. That's such a common experience I've had while reading his books because you're like reading you have to reread the sentences you're like wait geographically where is this because they're very geography heavy exactly and then all of a sudden you're just hit with like and then he dies and then she dies <laughs> yeah. and it's like oh my goodness and you're crying and you don't know what's going on i mean i wasn't crying and i did know what was going on but so i had you're, this you're uh, the short stories wait until you get to the long stories right? this this paragraph i'll read it for you and the listeners and viewers so it says He lay then and was quiet for a while and looked across the heat shimmer of the plain to the edge of the bush. There were a few tommies that showed minute and white against the yellow, and far off he saw a herd of zebra, white against the green of the bush. This was a pleasant camp under big trees against a hill, with good water and close by a nearly dry waterhole where sand grouse flighted in the mornings. So I kind of chose that paragraph at random. There are some that are even more, as you say, geographic and uh, pictorial even but i just thought having listened to that you could tell me what i read what did it like what was it describing there's a man laying on the edge of a field i suppose looking across and he sees a bunch of organisms which kind of organisms joeys no <laughs> it had a name like that Bobby's? tommy's yeah. tommy's right yeah, Tommy's. I don't know what a Tommy is. I don't know what they are either, but there's something, because it, it jumps out at you as a, as a proper word that is obviously a little bit more colloquial, it's capitalized with a T. Mm-hmm. It makes you want to find out what a Tommy is. What a Tommy is. And then what else was there? There's a shimmering link. There were buzzing <laughs> cicadas nothing, or something. Nothing buzzed. <laughs> nothing buzzed. 
There were zebra. Um, Nothing zebras. There were big trees. Okay. So what I'm saying is that it it requires you. That's why I say it's a good witness test because mm-hmm. I found myself a few times as I was reading this on autopilot, and then you'd be like, I don't know where we are. I don't actually know what is happening. Mm-hmm. Maybe because it's so, as I'm saying, so kind of simple. It lulls you into this. Like the vocabulary is so so basic, but it requires you to really imagine. And it sounds like I'm teaching a kid how to read, but I. I've noticed in myself that when I used to read as a child, up until like a teenager, I would be able to so immediately and easily, without trying, put myself in the scene, the geography, what's to the right, what's to the left, what's in the background, foreground, the colors, and all these kind of things. Um, and now, as an adult, even when it's spelled out for you as this is, it maybe even more so when it's spelled out for you as this is, I struggle to do so. I have to consciously try. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another emphasis we can say for the solo scene is, like when we're reading, are we honing our kind of imaginative skills? Are we, you know, like properly reading? Mm-hmm. Maybe that sounds really dumb and I'm the only person who is degraded to this extent. But No, I think it doesn't have to be reading for everyone because not everyone can even find an ounce of joy in reading. Of course. But whatever it is for you, whatever hobby it may be, being intentional with it and perhaps distinguishing between doing that hobby for entertainment and doing it for self-expansion. Because mm. some books I read just for entertainment. Like, I just read the new Hunger Games book. Yeah, I'm reading Murakami's um, 1Q84. And those are both just, like, really entertaining, easy to read. Like, you don't have to do the thinking because they're kind of a lower reading level. Then mm. when you, but then I'm like, I don't want to just read for fun the same way that I would just watch Netflix for fun. Hemingway is kind of that project and maybe for you it could be something slightly above your skill level that you're just trying to slowly get better at just for the sake of improving yourself because I think we often think we improve ourselves until we graduate high school or university and then we're the same but what Hemingway always did was always trying to expand himself and yeah his writing is a good example of something that you can use as a tool to do that in your own life and I just find it funny because I feel like there's three tiers of writers. There's like the ones that I just mentioned of like Suzanne Collins, who's writing for like preteens, really. Yeah, genre writers usually, yeah. genre fiction. And then there's the Hemingway. And then there's like Gertrude Stein, who we're going to talk about later. Oh, levels of kind of abstraction. Of abstraction, even. yeah. And I just wanted to touch a bit on Hemingway's techniques now. This is just for fun. It's not really a soul scene lesson. So he had what he called iceberg theory, which is when you're writing you're only exposing the tip of the iceberg. The depth of your writing comes from what you omit. And he chose the word omit to describe this because it's not just the author doesn't know and they're just writing a story like he writes stories. He knows what's going on. He said in some of his short stories, the characters hang themselves at the end, but he omits that. Mm -hmm. So he knows that. And by doing that, the story has depth. And it seems kind of pretentious and like it doesn't make sense. But when you read Hemingway, it does make sense. I just read To Have and Have Not, and there were a lot of time skips in this book. It was kind of told in three parts of this man's life, like his fall from grace. And the amount of stuff that was omitted, it would be normally very annoying and confusing. But Hemingway did this thing of writing just enough to make you understand what's going on. And you might not even understand it right away. You might finish the book and then back at the beginning realize oh, this is really important with the character. Like, 
first time I read The Sun Also Rises until like the last page, I didn't realize that the main character was impotent. And that was like the plot of the book. Like mm-hmm. that was what the whole thing was about, but he never said it explicitly. Yeah, I think it's also it's it's this really purest form of show don't tell, which is the most basic kind of writing advice. What it does for the reader is it makes it endlessly enjoyable to reread and mm-hmm. discuss because you're you feel like you're scaling further and further down the iceberg. I think one of the best examples of this is the The Old Man in the Sea, which might be mm-hmm. one of his most famous works, which I read in high school. My high school English teacher was fanatical about the book because <laughs> he was he was basically outlining all the different themes that it might be covering depending on your mood for the day. Literally. And it's because um it's such a it's such a kind of blank canvas, the actual text. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that people project different meanings onto it. I'm just saying it's this really intuitive way of incorporating deeper themes into, you know, what can seem so so simple. Which is how life is, kind of. Yeah, I mean Hemingway's quest in life was to write one true sentence. And I always say that because I feel like we should all have similar quests in our lives. Yeah. Of just like these kind of abstract, basically unattainable things. Or like one true sentence like what does that mean mm-hmm. it doesn't really mean anything but it's an interesting thesis to have for your life and i feel like we often don't have those goals set for ourselves or the goals are very concrete like make this much money move to this place but it can just be like what about make the world more joyful like yeah. just it's kind of corny but i like it i've never really thought about that that mission statement of his before but i like it because it almost has a kind of eastern ring to it. It's almost like one for at least for at least a moment to kind of permeate through all the illusion and pretension and maybe creative kind of obfuscations that can get in the way of reality, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That sounds super pretentious and like I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> and I probably don't. Yeah. A couple other notes I had about his prose from reading the short stories. One, it goes without saying, but it was before the dreaded like Mm. you know it's so confident and it's so assertive and it's a breath of fresh air maybe it's because i don't read a lot of contemporary stuff but it just feels incredibly modern and new to me and another part of this is that he's very kind of vague and sparse with things like character names Mm -hmm. so he could very well start two pages of the story with like he said this she said this he replied this she did this and then it would just casually mention that his name was Harry. Yeah. And there's something that makes that feel very timeless and universal, even though, and this is what I think is a great balancing act, the stories are chock full of really specific details from those times and places. Mm-hmm. And that's something, I guess that's another solo scene lesson is just being observant and having that kind of knowledge of what's going on around you, which sounds simple, but it made me want to read the news for the first time in like a decade Mm -hmm. because you don't have to be traveling to get this inspiration no like you can just be observant with what's happening on your block and this will set you apart from most people these days (laughs) (laughs) well it's not about that but it's about um if everybody was doing this it would be kind of cool you don't have to be going on your safari but you could be just going to the cafe and really noticing I mean, eavesdropping is a favorite kind of writerly hobby of mine, but really <laughs> noticing, oh, he's he's got a tick. <laughs> I'm not saying that, but like, he has a cold. 
Yeah. He's sniveling. Yeah, maybe they're on a first date. Yeah, they look like they're on a first. Oh no, they're breaking up. Yeah. On the first date. Uh, he won a Nobel Prize in 1954 the, for literature. And I thought that was somewhat rare because it's a popular writer who mm-hmm. was a household name winning the Nobel Prize for literature, which when I look down the list doesn't happen too often. Bob Dylan won in 2016. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple others in like the last few decades who I think people who kind of have their ears to the streets will know about but he was like a massive massive name yeah it's probably one of the most famous Nobel prize recipients because i believe he didn't go to the ceremony because oh, really? it had followed this is a bit biographical but basically in the 1940s it just was like tragedy after tragedy after tragedy in his life everyone he loved just like died he was in two consecutive plane crashes hmm. so his physical self was just like deteriorating and he was getting a lot of brain damage because of these different things car crashes plane crashes it was obviously the bombing like when he was blown up by a bomb so like he was his brain was starting to just be physically damaged and it was driving him a bit crazy because he couldn't write to the level of clarity that he wanted to anymore and was then getting depressed because of all of these things and was sent to electroshock therapy at the Mayo Clinic a few times, I think three times, which just damaged his brain even further. And so when it came time for the Nobel Prize, his wife reports that he was like, he was excited, but he also just felt so isolated and so upset that he refused to like go accept it. And he infamously said something like, I don't deserve this, but like I'll take the money or something like that. Like it was very... He he was very happy to have received it, but also was just so far gone mentally that he couldn't like he couldn't even enjoy it the way he could, considering he was only fifty four. Yeah, there's a lot of tragedy to his life, as seems to be the case with a lot of great writers. But as I was saying about the snows of Kilimanjaro and just the the weight of his storytelling, I think tales like that only come from having to some extent, been through a ringer. Mm-hmm. For sure. Even in that story, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, the main character himself is a writer and he's basically dying. That's not a spoiler because it's such a short story. And he's kind of recounting all the experiences in his life that he had shelved at one point uh, with intention of returning to, saying, well, someday I'll be able to write about that. Meaning he'll have kind of calcified enough and incorporated enough and maybe forgotten sufficient amounts of it that he could uh, feel he, he would be able to do it justice with the with his level of writing and this reminds me of something when we were in university and we went to the school production of uh, the play of one of dante's parts of his divine comedy purgatorio do you remember doing that mm-hmm. and it was good it was earnest Hemingway. But then afterwards, I was kind of like enduring because I'm a big fan of that book. It's kind of like they feel like they're just teenagers running around shouting the lines. And it's not necessarily their fault, but it's like there's a and I know that theater is about pretending, but there's also a kind of gravitas that having experience lends you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it just kind of sounded like children saying things that they didn't really understand. Let me put it like that. 
interesting because we similarly went to see the ballet slash modern production of Requiem last year, and it was it's kind of about it's just about death. It's basically a bunch of corpses dancing around for like two hours, and it's similarly like a bunch of eighteen to twenty four year olds, and it's yeah. like there's something weird about it. Like there's nothing like it's hard to embody an emotion if you don't have any grounds for it. Yeah, I think there can be. It can work as this delightful contrast. I, I think it did work in something like a ballet because it's so visual and it's this, there is a kind of deliberate pairing of youth with themes of death and mm-hmm. innocence with like corpses and stuff like that. But then when it was just Virgil and Dante, these great writers kind of bellowing lines without any of the real, uh, as Hemingway would say, maybe truth to mm-hmm. it. Yeah, there was something to that. So maybe we could boil it down to YOLO. Maybe that could be the theme for the day. Okay. Maybe that'll be on the thumbnail. YOLO. YOLO. Hemingway says, mm-hmm. y- you only live once is what that means. Yes. So the villain of the week this week is... Passports. So Aaron and I have this vendetta against passports. <laughs> It's not that either of us have a weak passport or anything, but it's just... Did you say a weak passport? Yeah. What is that? Well, depending on where you live, your passport can't get you everywhere. Oh. But like as a Canadian, obviously, I can go pretty sure like anywhere in the world. Okay. And similar with yours. But I think... So that's not why we hate passports, because like we don't have like an issue with ours. But it's just the fact that they exist and that there is this disparity across the world of like some people literally can't leave their country. Passports also just weren't a thing a hundred years ago. Well, they were a thing. Like, bear with me. They've been a thing since biblical times of like, if you were going to be crossing into another person's territory, you'd get this like written note from royalty being like, I'm here. I'm not here to invade. I'm just here to do business or whatever. And so like there have been passports and there's always been documentation when people are immigrating and stuff but it's just after world war ii the united nations were kind of like we need to maintain peace and this is how we'll do it and i read an interesting line that said passports are less about creating a more democratic society of world travelers than it was about control which i just think is very very true and apparently after world war ii it was basically just the western countries that wanted them a lot of european countries asian countries Everywhere was like, this doesn't feel like a good idea. This feels like a way of control. But if America is insisting that you have to have a passport to get there and it has to be the standardized UN certified thing, then you have to or else you're going to miss out on growth. And that's what I sensed about passports, that it was a bit more about control than it was about democracy or like freedom. And I think it's when it comes to travel like i do think some documentation is important but it's just i don't like passports i don't have that much to say of why but i don't like them mainly because whenever i read hemingway i'm like this man was just like popping over to serve in the spanish war traveling in his little fishing boat to cuba like Mm -hmm. you could you can't even you can't travel very freely well i think it's passports is more what they represent which is the lack of freedom to do things mm-hmm. so for instance if you own land you can't just build things on it we're yeah, gonna sound that a, is quite a bit like quite a bit like uh libertarians on this but i haven't <laughs> thought it through entirely uh politically but it's more about the romance that writers like hemingway 
sometimes remind you of. And because mm-hmm. you think of passports, or we think of them because we're only like 20 something as just these long standing institutions. But as mm-hmm. you say, there's less than, they're less than a century old. And mm-hmm. if you look back, you can find the reactions of people like Orson Welles, who I think is another kind of American analog to Hemingway, similar in that kind of archetype, bemoaning passports, mm-hmm. which is a really funny thing to do because it seems to us like they've just been around forever, but they mm-hmm. haven't. And the people who, who live through this change are kind of like, these actually suck. Yeah, and I think... <laughs> Yeah, you're right. It's more about what it represents. Like, passports themselves, kind of whatever, but it's like... They can be fun, even. You yeah. get a little stamp. It's... Exactly. But it's just like, now you can't just cross the border however you want. You have to go to this one point, or you have to then rely on a bunch of government stuff. You have to pay a bunch of money. Like it's, Yeah, you can't... It's kind of the money of it all, and the some bureaucracy. Pla- some places you can't even pay with cash. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this thing called credits you're not allowed to know how it's calculated or what the numbers really mean. And you're also not taught about it, mm-hmm. but it's just assigned to you. Yeah. And it's just kind of this mystery number that floats about you. One final passport fact that made me punch my other hand like this <laughs> was that in when they began to like the mid mid century, women weren't like allowed passports. It was, they were only a footnote on their husband's passports. And same with the kids. Yeah, well, so I like, think that's how it should be. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's just like wild. It's like, so women weren't even allowed to travel. Like, all of a sudden, they went from being able to do whatever they want, like, go wherever they want, to not being able to leave, sometimes even within their country, without their husband's passport on hand. It's just, like, wild. Yeah, I think, I think this feeds into why it's, it's harder to get a Hemingway these days. I mean, we also we also gloss over that not everything was easy peasy poozy in the centuries past. I mean, mm-hmm. travel is easier today in many ways than it was, you know, in ever before in history because people have more disposable income and you can take a, you can fly places easier and all that kind of things. Whereas mm-hmm. maybe before it was for the ultra rich exclusively, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's gotten just better in every way, as we were saying. But something really neat about Hemingway's writing is that it functioned, from my understanding, almost as much as a travelogue as it did as like fiction that people get engrossed in. Like he would publish these things in magazines about this is what they do in Switzerland. And Mm -hmm. I can just imagine people buying it and being awestruck because they've never heard of this exotic land of Switzerland and skiing in these cutesy little villages. And it was almost like fantasy. I think he lived in this interesting moment of the hockey stick graph between when the world was absolutely massive and unexplorable to when it was kind of trivially small and you can watch a vlog of people in every country on the world of the world and kind of roll your eyes at it almost Mm -hmm. so that sense of romance and travel and exploration is for sure a key tenet of the solar scene yeah, that's what brought him to Paris was as a as a foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star. Mm. And then he was able to travel from there. He went, yeah, Spain, Switzerland, Germany. But I really like what you just said. That's what brought him to Paris as something. There was mm-hmm. a reason. You know what I mean? Like there's a there was a driving force. It wasn't just I'm going to go here to rest or whatever it may be. And I think that that's what people maybe miss when they today try and capture some spirit of adventure by saying i'm gonna go to paris Mm -hmm. but if you just go with the intention of 
kind of seeing Paris or or resting, then I mean I think th- it's not like that's a waste of time either. Like that's still great, but it's it's something different entirely when you go as part of something. If you have a quest, mm-hmm. and I saw this funny comment yesterday. We were watching a YouTube video about this very thing, third places and the breakdown of social fabric and just general garbageness of modernity. And one of the comments was like, I think this is why people um, glorify that summer of Pokemon Go so much. And we have such fond memories of it. And I kind of laughed because at the time I was definitely quite dismissive of the Pokemon Go phenomenon because it's like, oh, people need their phones and Nintendo games to get outside and be together. But then it kind of clicked for me that the reason people liked that so much is that it provided them with a quest. Mm -hmm. However, kind of false and fictional that quest was, it was, we're going to go to this place to do this thing, not just to hang out or whatever. So I think, I mean, maybe what Hemingway's life proves is that quest is kind of more of a state of mind than anything else. But Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's an external or an internal drive, it should be more present in the solo scene. Another thing that should be more present in the solo scene are salons. Not hair salons, but just in Paris during this time, the Lost Generation movement, Picasso, Matisse, Anderson, all of these people. Um, Gertrude Strain every Saturday would host these salons at her apartment, (laughs) which is basically just like, hey, all of you very creative people, come over, have a drink, discuss. Like, we're not all going to have access to all of the greatest painters, but you might have some pretty good people in your community who you want to invite over and let them mingle. Yeah, but something something I've been thinking about that lost generation is that in some ways it's the mingling that helps them all become great. Right? I mean, I think they there are like Picasso and James Joyce and Gertrude Stein and Hemingway, like they are, they were all incredibly talented people mm-hmm. in their own right but i think that helps you i think so too transcend new levels and it's a shame that today should i say there's a reason that that uh convergence of them in paris is so famous and mythologized it's because it's a rare thing mm-hmm. but it does feel like in the internet era it is and will become even rarer because well, for a couple of reasons. Now people are, for some reason, more content to connect virtually. So it's like, well, why would we all go to a city? We can all just share a Discord server. Yeah. Or also, the internet kind of ruins things like that, I find, before they even begin. Mm-hmm. Because it would be like, it would word would kind of get out very quickly that, hey, Paris is a kind of cheap place to live and there's a bunch of artists there. And then would come all the avocado toasters. I'm joking about that, but you know what I'm talking about? Like it, exactly. It, it, it becomes too too notorious too quickly, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like four-ish years ago when we decided to move to Montreal, rent was like <laughs> yeah, six to $700 a month. And everyone, right after the pandemic, was like, I'm moving to Montreal. Yeah. Now the rent is over double that. <laughs> because everyone heard about it on the internet and then came. And it's still a beautiful place. It's still an affordable place to mm-hmm. live, but it's just like... That's how fast it can happen. And if that's why Paris in the early 18, early 1900s was so famous, because it was cheap. There were all these artists. It was a good scene. So people went. And I think, yeah, there was a bit of a barrier 
entry that there isn't anymore. But I think even when these places do pop up, they're instantly inundated with people. And I don't know how to fix that if there is a fix for that besides just making everywhere awesome. nice to live. Yeah. And not yeah. just people, but but developers. Yeah, you know, for sure. Corporations coming in and, and taking the soul out of it before it really has, has time to develop. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Gentrification. We actually we recently watched Oppenheimer. We were the last two people uh, to watch that movie about six months too late. And there was one shot which really stuck with me, which is in the beginning kind of montage where he's obviously on the on the verge of the scientific breakthroughs. He's like staring at the Picasso and he's reading T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's this sense of being on this collective, like pioneering things, mm-hmm. which I think maybe in the world today, you'd only have in like the tech districts and cities like mm-hmm. Silicon Valley or or London or something like that, which kind of sucks. It's like, yeah, I had some notes about this frontier mentality and how we can perhaps re like make it a thing again in the solo scene. So historically until pretty recently, there's always a frontier, even if it was space. So there was like with all three dimensions, we could kind of explore to the bottoms of the ocean, to space and all over the land. But now that has basically all been explored besides like the outest, outermost reaches of space, which are so unattainable, even you can't conceptualize them. We can all conceptualize the moon because we can see it. Yeah. We can't even really conceptualize Mars. I don't think that's not like still things so, like there's space as an option. But it's just I think in the soul scene by making the world a little smaller, we can then You feel more of a romance if you go down to Costa Rica or something like that. Exactly. Rather than just scoping out on Airbnb, maybe. Right. Because we both intentionally when we travel don't look up the highlights of the places. <laughs> yeah. Infamously when you and I went to Florence, we didn't know about the Duomo. <laughs> so we walk into Florence and we're like What the are, we're both just like Hands yeah. on our heads, mouths open, like, what is What we were thing? actually more excited for was the Pinocchio Museum. It's same, though, <laughs> right? Because if we had gone on, like, all of the travel guides and stuff before we went, we would have known, we would have seen the Duomo, and we would have been like, oh, wow. Yeah, kind of how it is low-key with the Eiffel Tower. Like, the Eiffel Tower, we were both still, like, in shock with. But like, just imagine if you had landed in Paris. What the? When you saw yeah, the, the tower. Yeah, that would right? have been funny. So it's just trying to make the world artificially bigger than it actually is no i mean it is big Mm -hmm. right right now we make it artificially small by by constantly consuming content (laughs) from every continent of the world Mm -hmm. which i mean it's it's kind of a a curiosity killed the cat thing a little bit i guess or maybe a curiosity killed the curiosity yeah and the digital experience of trying to make that a frontier is just so soulless. And I heard, um, I was listening to this video essay by Damon Dominique that I highly, highly recommend. It's the last video that he posted. Um, And he was talking about how when you're scrolling or you're watching consecutive things on YouTube or Netflix, you're seeking something kind of unintentionally. Like you don't know what you're seeking, but then you know when you find it. So you're scroll, 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 and then you get this one funny video. Yes. And you laugh and you're like, oh, that's what I was looking for. Like, this isn't conscious. It's completely subconscious. Uh-huh. But then you kind of are like, well, I guess I start a new quest, scroll to the next one, scroll to the next one. Yeah, there's no certain dip. Yeah. There's no, but there's also no intentionality and there's no actual gratification. The gratification is so small with these digital successes versus the gratification of doing something in the physical world. Even if it's like baking cookies. Like, at least there's like a 
physiological gratification instead of just like a tiny and there's also, mental one. There's also, oh, you burn yourself on the baking tray or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's risk Engaging involved, the senses. however small yeah. it is. There's, it could go wrong, kind of. So you even like a, a cost involved. Of like, okay, if you burn them, you're out to three dollars. Mm-hmm. But if you don't find the the laugh on your TikTok, like you burn three minutes. Yeah. The last thing about Hemingway is I just think he has a really cool name. I think yeah. that's such a rightly name. Mm-hmm. It's true. Hemingway just like I guess probably just based on his legacy, but it just seems so perfectly destined. Destined to be. Yeah. Love it. Give your kids Names that imply their destiny. Soul scene lesson number five. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. As we said, you can catch us on YouTube. Subscribe there. If you're listening on an app like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, I don't remember all of them, but please maybe leave one of those little ratings out of five. I'm doing that thing where I poke my fingers together bashfully. Mm-hmm. And... uh I don't know. Tell your friends. Bye, everyone.